0: We're going to study his word, so if you got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open it up to 1 John chapter 5. We are studying through this letter, 1 John, and making our way progressively through it. We've got just one week left, so we end this series next Sunday, but I hope and trust it's been an encouragement to you and edifying to you as a believer. I know it has for me to dig into the words of this of this apostle, the last man standing 60 years after Jesus died and rose again. He was the only apostle left still writing and he knew what it was like to follow Jesus faithfully and to, one of his favorite words, to remain in him. And he is still remaining in Christ all these years later and telling us how do we do it? How do we remain in the faith and be faithful to him? So hope that's our heart and our desire as people of God as followers of Jesus Christ, and so we're going to look to his word together. If you'd follow along, I'm going to start reading 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know, we've heard that phrase many times, right? This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what love for God is to keep His commands. And His commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world our faith. So the term born again is spoken of, conversed about, dialogued about, it's on the news from time to time. The question for us to think about as we look at this text is, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? Christian research groups are continually producing new findings to try to describe this demographic of born-again Christians. Here's some recent research. Twenty-five percent of so-called born-again Christians believe salvation can be earned through personal goodness or good works. Only 39 percent of born-again Christians believe that they have a responsibility to share the gospel with people who don't believe it other stats that are continuing to come out about the lack of distinction between those who are born again and those who are not born again as it relates to lifestyle choices and moral convictions and generosity to the poor and little to no daylight between those who claim to be born again and those who claim not to be born again. You you read enough of those statistics and those surveys put out as they are by Christian research organizations, and you start to wonder, have these Christian research organizations read 1 John? Because John talks about being born again as a radical new life. It, It draws a massive, bold demarcation in the world for people who have been claimed by the grace of God. And so if you derive your definition of what it means to be born again from 1 John, you see things like what we see here in our text. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Look down, verse 3. This is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Why? Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. In other words, John is clearly saying, when you're born of God, it makes a difference in what you want to do in your life. Look, flip back at chapter 2, verse 29. We're not going to look at every place John talks about being born of God or born again, but these are a couple of them. Chapter 2, verse 29. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. if we say we have fellowship with him, and if we say we have God's life in us, we have fellowship with him, John says, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So, in a way, the Apostle John wants to, wants to produce a new survey. He wants to produce new findings and update our assessment of what it means to be born again, and according to this letter, according to First John, the percentage of born-again Christians who demonstrate no interest in obeying God's commands is zero. No one who is born of God is dismissive or blows off his commands. By definition, John says, when you're born of God, you love his commands. They're not a burden. It's not an albatross around your neck. It's exactly what you want to do. Doesn't mean you'll pull it off perfectly, but it's in your heart because your want to has been tweaked. Your your want to has been changed. Some 30 years before John was writing these words, the Apostle Paul was riffing on the same theme when he said, if anyone is in Christ, here's what happens. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. It's a radical change. According to the apostle John and the apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers, when you meet the real Jesus Christ, you will never be the same. When you collide into Jesus Christ, it leaves a mark. Which then begs the question, so what do we want in a nominalistic culture? Do do we really want to settle for a Christianity that leaves you exactly the way you were before? We want a Christianity that is a biblical Christianity that is shaped by these realities of new life and transformation that takes place by the grace of God in the soul. So John clarifies what Christianity is. Number one, it's new birth. Christianity is new birth, and you can go ahead and fill in that next point in your sermon outline. God the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life. God the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us life. For John, all of the change that we experience as Christians grows out of our new birth. You don't do these good works and graduate toward new birth, those good works come because you've been changed. You've been born again. Your eyes have been opened. You see what you didn't see before. So this same author, this same John, walked with Jesus when Jesus was walking the earth. And John was there. He was one of his disciples. He was a disciple whom Jesus loved. And this John was there. Matter of fact, he records it in his gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 3. He was there when Jesus has this dialogue with one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And, and John records it in his gospel what Jesus said to this religious leader when he said these words Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. Now, Jesus uses this metaphor the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So what, what is Jesus saying? Just like you don't see the wind, you can't determine where it's come from. You can't determine where it's going later. You just see that it's there because the, the, the leaves on the tree are moving, right? The wind is mysterious to you, but you see it when it passes through a tree. But before that, you don't know where it was coming from. You don't know where it's headed next. In the same way Jesus says, there's, there's a mystery about rebirth. There's a mystery about it. It's at the, it's at the disposal and the discretion of a sovereign spirit, and he blows through your tree and your leaves start shaking. And you don't know where he's going next. But wherever he blows, you see the impact on something external. But there's mystery involved. C.S. Lewis, well known for producing the children's books of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he, was, um, he came to faith in Christ but, be, but he looked back retrospectively and he said, before I came to faith in Christ, I would, you would have considered me to be the most unlikely convert in all of England. He was a hardened atheist from the age of 15 years old. He was even harder. There was quotes that I could have produced from the age of 17. He was getting harder and harder. And then he became a fellow at, uh, at Oxford. He was an avowed atheist. Until one fateful morning in September of 1931, when the wind blew through his trees and he saw what he had hadn't seen before, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he talks about what happened the night before. He said, The night before my eyes were open, he said, I called some friends. We used to hang out at Magdalen College where he taught. And he said, They came over, two friends, Hugo Dyson and a person you'll probably be familiar with, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, the author of Lord of the Rings, and they were talking together at Magdalen College there at Oxford. And he said, we were talking about all kinds of things, things that interest us. Um, he said, we came to a conversation about the Gospels, and they were talking about the veracity of the Gospels, and I was saying that those are myths. And, and C.S. Lewis says, I know a myth when I see it. He said that the night before he came to faith in Jesus. I know a myth when I see it. The Gospels are myths. And he left that conversation. There was probably no reason for Tolkien and Dyson to necessarily think he's on the hook like God is working in his life. The conversation's over, and there was nothing about it. And the next morning, he wakes up, and he's just going to hop in the car and ride to the zoo with his brother, and here's what he said happened. I was driven into whipsnade that's the zoo, on a Sunday morning, sunny morning, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. And yet, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. In other words, the wind blew through his tree and he became alive. He had new birth. Five minutes ago, I didn't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Suddenly, he's everything. He's everything to me and I can't wait to follow him and give him my life. That's what John says. That's what new birth will do to you. It'll rock your world. It'll change everything about who you are and what you live for. So follower of Jesus, how do we respond to this truth that God is the one who gives us life, that he is the one who has the power of regeneration? He has the ability to wake the soul up. How do we respond to that? Here's one way to respond. Praise him without restraint. Praise him without restraint. Why? Because God didn't wait for you to make the first move. God was the initiator. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, he's the author and the finisher of our faith he started it you didn't crank it up he came and got you he came and turned the lights on here's what the Apostle Paul says he, he agrees with what John is saying here he says this is what happened when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses that's the Apostle Paul and the doctrine of regeneration he made you alive you were dead he made you live. Apostle James agrees with that. James 1, verse 18. By his own choice, that is God's choice, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. Apostle Peter. So there's Paul. There's James. James. Here's Peter, the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One after another, Apostle James, Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter. Until God turns the lights on, you just keep being dead. And then you're reborn And you have life through the powerful work of God's Spirit. You know, John, in this letter, he uses the same construction in the original language, time after time after time, to say that all these signs of life are results of new birth. So here's how he says it, for example. The person who loves his brother has been born of God. So your love for your brother and your sister in Christ is an outgrowth of your new birth. You didn't love others on your way to new birth. You were born again, and now you love your brothers and sisters. He says the same thing, in essence, about the commands. The person who obeys God's commands has been, same exact phrase, has been born of God, chapter three, verse nine. And then here, similar language, similar construction in chapter five, verse one, look at it. Everyone who believes, what did you believe on day one? The day you came to faith in Jesus Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Your faith on day one was the result of the fact that God turned the lights on. Paul, The Apostle Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians, he would say, The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light, says it in your heart. Let there be light, and there's light. Your new birth resulted in your believing that Jesus is the Christ. Your new birth resulted in your new desires to obey his commands. Your new birth resulted in your newfound love for his people. So praise him without restraint. That's our response as believers because if you're alive in Christ, it's not because of your good works. It's not because you know how to spot a good deal when you see it. You are either living in outright defiance against God, living for your own pleasures as if God did not exist, Or you were patronizing him through religious observance, flipping nickels at the cross, right? Sort of like I'll go to Sunday school because he doesn't really ask for much. You know, so I'm going to take this minimal Christian faith thing and go through the motions of religion. Neither one of those amounts to salvation in the New Testament. Here's what the New Testament tells us we were doing before he turned the lights on. Romans chapter 3. On their tongue was the poison of asps. Their throat was an open grave. None were seeking God. None were righteous. What you were doing the moment before God seized your heart is you were running away from him. All we, like sheep, had gone astray. All of us had turned aside to our own way. And he flips on the lights and suddenly Jesus is beautiful and the cross is sufficient and I want God, I hunger for him. Aurelius Augustine, the fourth century theologian, he said, this is what happened. He called and shouted and burst my deafness. He shattered my blindness and he breathed and I drew in my breath and panted for him. He said, I hungered, that was new. I thirsted. That was new. I had to have God. Five minutes ago, didn't want anything to do with him. Now, he's everything. That's glorious, saving power. And it all goes back to this initiating work of God the Holy Spirit called regeneration. He gives us life when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon worked on this question. He asked himself the question so how why is it that I love God now? It wasn't always true in my life. Well, why do I love him now? And here's how he worked on it. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. That's your story, Christian. That's why the Apostle Paul said there's no boasting. If we understand how this happened, there's zero boasting except in him. So praise him without restraint. Second, proclaim him without reluctance. Proclaim him without reluctance. Proclaim his gospel boldly. Why are we going to finish the year as a church? Why don't we call every member of the church of Brook Hills to give? Over and above our regular giving, which we hope is happening all throughout the year in obedience to God's word. But in addition to our regular giving, why do we as a church say, let's give above and beyond that to the global offering. And story after story and week after week throughout the month of December, we focus on this. Well, why do we do that? Because the global offering is aimed at one thing ultimately, the spread of the message through which God wakes up people, through which God turns the lights on and makes the dead live. You know, sometimes, so the hymn, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. And sometimes he does come softly and tenderly. That might be your story, Uh, that Jesus, as it was prophesied about him, he would not be one who would come and break a bruised reed. He would come with a particular and keen tenderness. And he would say to the weary, "Let, let all who are weary and heavy laden come to me. That's the softly, tenderly Jesus. He's there in the pages of the Gospels. You find him there. Sometimes he comes to the soul gently. And if that's how he came to your soul, that's exactly what you needed to come to faith. But softly and tenderly is not his only option. And some of you, he had to come another way. He didn't sort of gently rap with the back of his knuckle on the door of your heart begging for you to let him in he tore the thing off its hinges he came in like a storm and took charge it was it was a sovereign takeover of your dead heart. Word was spoken in the Old Testament about, I'm going to come. I'm tired of just waiting on rebellious and broken people. And the prophet Ezekiel said, and God was speaking through him, and God said, I'm just going to cleanse you. I'm going to come and take your stony, resistant heart. I'm going to take it away and give you this fleshy, receptive heart. I'm going to do the change I've been waiting for. I'm going to do it. It's the power of a sovereign God, if your only image of of Jesus is this sort of halting Jesus, this kind of low-talker Jesus, you know, don't want to interrupt you, don't want to wake you up or anything like that. Look, that's part of him, but if that's your only vision of Jesus, your Jesus is too small. Your, Your Jesus is too tame. It's not the only picture we have of Jesus. John Newton, one of my historical heroes, He's the author of Amazing Grace, he was a a former slave trader, and his life was completely changed by the grace of God. Well, in one of his less known hymns, he actually tells you his story of what happened, and he says this in verse 1, in evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, until a new object struck my sight, and stopped my wild career. And he goes on to tell you the story of how he saw, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ crucified. Totally changed his life. Charles Wesley, same thing, puts his story to music in these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What explains stories of radical change like that? Here's what explains it. God's sovereign wind blew through their trees. They didn't see it coming but they knew it when it came. It changed everything. I pray God does that every Sunday. I head into this moment praying, God, turn the lights on in places that are invisible to us, invisible to me, but you have access to the heart. Take away stony hearts this morning. I pray he's doing it even now, taking away stony hearts, and suddenly you have this responsive, ready heart. You you find yourself wanting Jesus. You didn't want him five minutes ago, but now you want him. He's compelling to you, the one Savior of the world. And maybe you would come to a point where you find yourself believing the gospel, believing the message that transforms our lives, a song that we used to sing in my church growing up. And my mom would hop on the Hammond B3 and tune dad up, and the place would go wild, and we were just singing these glorious truths. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freed me forever. One day he's coming back, glorious day. And that song would tune up the church. Why? Because we had been awakened to the story. It wasn't just Apostles' Creed stuff back there in ancient history. Like the lights were on and we saw it. And that's, one of the implications of that is in moments like this, or moments where you're sharing the gospel with somebody in your life, I feel zero need to make this slick or or clever or to cajole you or try to pressure anybody into believing in Jesus Christ. When the spirit turns the lights on, when his wind blows through the trees, I couldn't keep you from running to Jesus. Like, hells of demons couldn't keep you from running to Jesus. When the lights go on, here you come. It's like when Jesus walks up to the the tomb of Lazarus, and what does he say? Three words, Lazarus, come forth. And the speaking of the words is a performative utterance. It creates the life it commands. Suddenly, Lazarus finds himself breathing, breathing wrapped in tomb clothes, and he finds himself walking out toward this voice. It's a picture, it's a metaphor of salvation and the power of the Spirit in regeneration. So if, if this morning, this fine morning, you find yourself wanting Jesus Christ, why is that happening? It's happening because you are on the wake-up list for November 10th, 2019, And if that's what's going on in the internal of your heart and soul, it's time to start believing. It's time to let go and turn loose of whatever it was you were trusting in five minutes ago and to put everything in with Jesus. All in with him. John's pointing to the glorious reality of new birth and the resulting change is new life. New birth leads to new life. What are the marks of this new life? Well, we've looked at them now for weeks, and they appear once again here in our text. John likes to walk in circles. He'll talk about things, and then he'll come back around, and he'll turn it just ever so slightly and talk about it again. So look at verse 1, the second part of verse 1. We already looked at the first part. second part of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know we love God's children When we love God and obey His commands. So now that you're alive, you love God and you love His children. That's the next point. Now that you're alive, you love God and His children. That's exactly what John is saying. Everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. And this is how we know that we love the children, we love the Father. Right, so you see that goes both ways. So here's a, I'm gonna put up a picture of a family that's dear to us. They're members of the Church of Brook Hills. So that's the Lewis family. Some of you know them. They're awesome people. There's Josh and Allison are the parents and there's the kiddos, amazing family. We got to know Josh and Allison first and then we got to meet the kiddos. We've been in their house. Uh, Micah, the guy rocking the striped shirt there. Micah and I have chats Most every Sunday, right down here, he'll come up and give me a hug and tell me what's going on in his life. So that's Micah. We went to a ballet for the girls a couple months ago. I signed Jack's cast. So Jack's in a cast, the guy on the right there. Um, So our families have been connected together. The relationship obviously began with the parents. But at this point, where we are now, if you ask the question, do you love the Lewis kids because of Josh and Allison? or do you love Josh and Allison because of the Lewis kids? At this point, I have to say it's a toss up, right? The answer is yes. Both of them are absolutely true. And that I would submit to you is John's point. He's saying, if you love the father, you love the kids. And if you love the kids, you love the father. They both increase the love for the other one. That's how this family thing works. So what's that mean for us? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it means this. If you want to love the Lord more, you're going to need a local church. You're going to need brothers and sisters who know your name. You do life with them, and there's life-on-life connection and fellowship out here in the light with brothers and sisters. And our fellowship is not just here. It's with him, he says in chapter 1, right in the prologue of chapter 1. You need to share life with his kids, and that's going to increase your love for God. If we do this right, Brook Hills you're going to be able to say more and more to members of this church, I love God the Father more because of you. I I love Jesus more because you're in my life, because of your encouragement, because of your example. Imagine, if that's true, imagine how much we're going to love him in 10 years. If we do this, this thing called church we do life on life genuine fellowship out here in the light confessing our sins and praying for one another bearing one another's burdens we're going to love him so much in five years and in ten years church isn't an event it's a it's a community living together in the light growing in grace and the knowledge Of him. Now that we're alive, a new love is possible and a new obedience is possible. Look at the next verse, verse 3. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Just look at those words. This is what love for God is, to keep his commands. There could be many who, if they didn't know that was in the Bible, would say, hold on, time out, legalism alert. (laughs) So to love him equals obedience to his commands are we really going that far well hold on before you throw that under the bus too quickly John gets that from Jesus Jesus said if you love me you'll what obey me if you love me you'll keep my commands and so John says this is what love for God is to keep his commands and then he adds this I love this and his commands are not a burden that's such a key phrase, right? What does he mean? He's not saying, it's so easy to obey all of his commands. I mean, I haven't broken one of God's laws. I haven't sinned in 20 years. He's not talking about sinless perfection. Remember, in context, we're talking about new birth. We're talking about new nature, new heart, new want-tos, new desires. So he's saying, in essence, the commands of God are fitted to your new nature, You have a new heart. These commands make total sense to you. Matter of fact, when you break the commands, Romans 7, you're going to hate that you're breaking them. So Paul says, "I, I, I do the things that I hate sometimes. Well, why do you hate it? You didn't hate it before. You loved it with every part of your fiber and being. You loved sinning. Now why do you hate it? Because you got a new nature. You have new want-tos worked on the inside by the power of new birth, and his commands are not a burden. John, John is just saying this. Now that you're alive, you love the Lord. And those who love him keep his commands. Nothing, when you love someone, nothing gives you more joy than to give them joy. Right? Isn't that what love does? Um... If I cultivate love for, for my wife, let's just say today, I'm just going to work on cultivating love for my wife. If that's what I do today, there are a hundred rules that you don't have to give me because they're tucked inside loving my wife. Now if you said, well can we just stop and enumerate a couple of things, entailments of loving your wife today. So Matt, loving your wife means you you don't berate her. You don't insult her. You don't talk like she's beneath you. That's not what you do. And if I heard that command, I would say, that command is not a burden. That's exactly what I want to do. That's why I said I want to love her today. When I said I want to love her, it included all those commands. That's why Augustine, I think Augustine was onto something when he said something pretty shocking back there in the 4th century. He said, love God and do what you want. If your heart is captured by love for God, all the entailments, all those obligations, they're going to be consistent and tucked inside, but they're not going to feel like chains around your neck. The rule isn't burdensome. This brings us right back to where we started. What we need is new birth. New hearts that have been captured by God's grace in Christ. And once we're alive, we have internal motivation to love the Lord. Internal motivation to love one another. Internal motivation to keep his commands. There's new power for obedience. But get this, don't anchor your assurance to your obedience. John keeps coming around. He'll give the command and he'll come around over and over. Look at verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our obedience. No. You see, he's come back around. He's talking about faith again. Our faith. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. What is what is the victorious Christian life? What does that mean? Right? If if you've been at Brook Hills for, for any significant length of time, you know that we categorically reject the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth. Trust Jesus and you'll get, you know, you, he's a means to your own ends. That if you trust in Jesus, your quality of life just keeps going higher and higher. Not only are all your bills paid, you keep getting nicer and nicer things. And also, all the diseases, they can't find you because you've trusted in him and his cross covers all your diseases. So there goes cancer, there goes, upright. all of that, we just consider that to be anathema. That is, that is false teaching. We reject it categorically. And probably many of you, you could smell that stuff coming from a mile out. Because we talk about it. And I think it's important for us to talk about it from Scripture. Good. I'm glad you can smile, smell it at a mile out. But there's another form of prosperity teaching that sneaks in. There's another form of triumphalism that sneaks in. And it's this. If you surrender fully to Jesus, yes, you might get that disease. And you might not have all your bills paid and have nicer and nicer things. But you won't be clinically depressed. And you won't need a counselor, and you won't need a recovery program unless you're not trusting in him. And you won't have panic attacks, and you won't be awake at 3 o'clock in the morning because you can't figure your stuff out. That's not going to happen to you. I read it this, this week. I read a story of a Christian who died in the care of the mental institution of which he served as chaplain for decades. Um, So, can we just just be real about the fallenness of the world and about the pain that we experience in this life? When John says, your faith is the victory that overcomes the world, he's not wanting you to have faith in your faith. Faith that is self-referencing is self-contradictory. Faith doesn't look in, it looks out. That's the nature of the thing. Faith isn't a mirror, it's a window. Faith looks up and it looks out to the provision of Jesus Christ. You don't have to perform for it. You don't have to feel particularly strong. Matter of fact, faith often feels very weak. The Apostle Paul said, I glory in my weakness. Because that's when I realize he is completely sufficient. I'm not averse to weakness. I, I know Christians who... That that triumphalism sneaks into their hearts and into their minds, and they think, "I must not have the faith that I need because I don't feel strong yet. I don't feel fully in control yet." Friends, that is self-help dressed up in Christian clothes. That is not a gospel. That is not good news, and it's not biblical. You don't have to fill your mouth with positive speak. That's not what we're about. Why, believer in Christ, why are you bound for the promised land? Why why are you bound for the new heavens and the new earth? It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith. Stop measuring degrees of strength in how much you feel victorious. I've given the lyrics of this song to many friends who wrestle with depression. I sat in parking lots early when it was dark and the sun hadn't even come up. I could put you in a parking lot where I sat with a friend in the car. And he just could not believe that he was a Christian. That I have no assurance. I'm just reminding him of these truths. Look to Christ. You don't have to feel a thing. You don't have to feel a thing. Look to Christ. And I've given these lyrics of this song to many friends who who don't feel victorious. Andy Gullahorn writes, you don't have to be a martyr. I already know that you're strong. You don't have to stand unguarded in the eye of the storm. You don't have to send a message because there's nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. Everybody's got their limits. There's only so much you can take. You can dam it up inside you, but one day it's going to break. When the water overwhelms you, that's some of you in this room. When the water overwhelms you and you've lost the strength to swim, you don't have to be a hero and keep it all in. And here's the chorus. You can weep like a baby. You can sink like a stone. You can break and go crazy all right here in my arms. You're all right here in my arms that is the victory that overcomes the world that is a not self-referencing faith and other looking savior word looking faith where did we get the idea that the true life of faith must involve you feeling strong we learned this song many of us growing up and it was right on point. This is how it shapes up. They are weak, but He is strong. We get to be weak. He gets to be strong. You don't have to be victorious. You don't have to feel victorious. Don't focus on your degrees of victory. Look to Christ. That's the point. That's the victory that overcomes the world. The faith that overcomes the world is not a life lived in the power of self-effort, but in the perfect provision of our Redeemer, I'll say that again, the faith that overcomes the world is not a life lived in the power of self-effort, but in the perfect provision of our Redeemer. So what do we do now that we're alive? Now that we're alive, let's grow in our love for the Lord. Now that we're alive, let's grow in our practice of loving one another. Now that we're alive, let's find out that his commands are for our flourishing. And now that we're alive, let's anchor our assurance not in the strength of our faith, but in the object of our faith. In other words, at the end of the day, now that we're alive, let's look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith.